This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell. Hey, I'm glad you're with me. Boy, it has been a heck of a week for your personal finances, led by the Bank of Canada moving its timetable for increasing interest rates up, along with the admission that inflation is going to run higher, as high as 5% for the remainder of the year and longer than they had previously thought. And just in case you're not sure, that is significant for your cost of living. As one of my favorite economists, Jack Mintz, points out, in Canada, average weekly earnings, and that includes overtime, are about $1,130. So if inflation runs at about 5% this year, the same goods and services that your salary bought you last year are going to cost $50.5 more per week. Well, come on, multiply that by 52 weeks. Your cost of living for the year goes up $2,860. More on that in a few minutes. But first, we have a new federal cabinet with most of the attention focused on the appointment of the ex-head of Greenpeace in Quebec, co-founder of Quebec's environmental group, uh, Ecoterre, self-described radical, Stephen Guibert, as environment minister. Well, the question is, is anyone surprised at the reaction to his appointment? especially in conjunction with the dropping of two other cabinet ministers who were widely seen as sort of middle of the road and competent Jim Carr and Mark Grenot. Now, along with the appointment of self-described climate crusader, Jonathan Wilkinson, he's now minister of natural resources. So again, I'm not asking if you support the appointment of climate activists who subscribe to the emergency climate challenge to be in charge of government oversight of the oil and gas industry, along with the production of mineral resources like copper, nickel, zinc, cobalt, which are all desperately needed for the transition to renewable energy and electric vehicles. I'm just simply asking, regardless of how you feel, are you surprised by the reaction? Because I can't believe that the prime minister or anyone else in the liberal government is surprised at the outcry in Alberta, for example. Strong concerns expressed by both Premier Jason Kenney and the NDP's Rachel Notley or in the business community, or with the National Post John Iverson reporting that one senior liberal, liberal, summed up the appointments as, in quotes, vandalizing the economy, further stating that business-oriented liberals are apoplectic. That's the reaction of some liberals. Again, anyone surprised? I think the talk that Mr. Guibault has a secret agenda, by the way, is off the mark. I don't think there's anything secret about it. He's clearly on record as wanting Alberta's oil and gas industry to be landlocked en route to shutting it down entirely. He's opposed to all pipelines. Doesn't matter, by the way, if he's talking oil or or natural gas. He's also, I mean, even against the federal government's own Kinder Morgan pipeline. I mean, there's nothing secret, is my point, about his agenda. He's been crystal clear. What's noteworthy, though, is the other message it sends. Obviously, the federal government doesn't care about Alberta's reaction. They would have known about it in advance or the reaction of the oil and gas or mining industries or business as a whole. What's also clear from the reaction of many liberals is that Justin Trudeau's moved the party a long way from Paul Martin's and Jean Chrétien's version. But that's just politics. So who cares? Clearly, Mr. Trudeau doesn't. But what's far more important is the message that it sends to those capital investors. I mean, do we care about attracting capital investment or what jobs in the energy industry and the economic growth in general? Well, clearly, they're not priorities. As Jack Mintz observed during the federal election campaign, in quotes, the liberals so far have shown little interest in boosting growth through the private sector, believing instead that growth comes through more public spending. 
because there's certainly nothing in the appointments of Mr. Guibo and Jonathan Wilkinson that would change that observation. Or that of former head of the Bank of Canada, David Dodge, who worked closely with Prime Minister Paul Martin to eliminate the federal budget deficit, who states, the policies of the government in power and the proclivities of the current Prime Minister are not particularly oriented toward the hard work of generating economic growth. There's also nothing to address the concerns of StatCan's former chief economist, Philip Cross, who says Canada's dismal 10-year average 1.5 growth in real GDP is the worst since the Great Depression of the 1930s. It reflects lagging business investment or inability to innovate and build world-class firms and our minuscule productivity growth. But even that shouldn't be a surprise. Economic growth maximizing our natural resource advantage or productivity growth, attacking, attracting capital investment, which are keys to long-term uh, prosperity, our standard of living, have never been priorities for the prime minister. And judging by the recent federal election, they're not a, a, a priority for the majority of Canadians. They vote for parties whose platforms not only don't support economic growth, but at times actively undermine it. Now, you can decide whether you think economic growth is important, whether it should be a priority or not. Although I have to add that I've yet to receive anything resembling a meaningful answer to the question. It doesn't matter if your big concern is poverty, homelessness, sustainable health care, other government services, or our standard of living. I don't know which one of those is served by a weak, a weak economy. As for energy, well, you're going to be paying more for gasoline, home heating, a transportation, any good that's transported, because high energy prices are going to be with us for a long time as demand increases and underinvestment in oil and gas means supply can't keep up, just as we're seeing already in the UK and Europe and Asia today. Now, in a few minutes, I'm going to get ACE analyst Eric Nuttall of Nine Points Energy Fund to give his forecast for what's coming, the prices you'll pay. I promise you're going to find it fascinating. And rising energy prices are going to play a significant role back to that cost of living. And we're going to feel it right in our pocketbooks. And most of us will also feel it given that the Bank of Canada is bringing forward their uh, forecast for rising interest rates with the consensus of analysts, you know, looking for four rate increases next year. Now, I know that the prime minister said during the campaign, he doesn't think about monetary policy, but that doesn't mean it won't impact your pocketbook directly. I'll talk more about that with both Victor Dare and Michael Levy in a moment. You know what? This is a very good show, but I think more than that, it's an important one. So stay with us. Well, this could be the main event. It's called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. That's what's happened with the Bank of Canada. When they look at the inflation numbers, and traditionally you'd raise interest rates to meet those, but we look at record debt, so you don't want to be raising interest rates. Let's bring Michael Levy in, because obviously, Mike, the biggest story in the past week has to be the Bank of Canada hinting at more rate increases, but moving them forward into the April to September timeframe, which, of course, gets everybody's attention, given we've got record levels of debt, as I said. Well, they do, Mike, and um, they did, and uh, they telegraphed this. I mean, there was no doubt this was coming. It's like the guy standing on an aircraft carrier with flags trying to attract the incoming planes, and he's waving those flags frantically. Bank of Canada has been waving those flags, and it just took this last uh, uh, report on Wednesday, the monetary policy report, along with the announcement, to just confirm what we have been talking about, you have been talking about for quite some time now. 
Well, and again, it's the inflation numbers that are grabbing people's attention because traditionally when you start getting inflation numbers, which again, the bank admitted have surprised uh, the bank how long and persistent and how high they've got. The inflation number, by the way, they're looking as much as 5% inflation as we go through the end of the year, much raised inflation. And traditionally, the way to handle that is to increase interest rates. But as I say, yeah, they hinted at that, but the market says there's going to be more than just one. They are, Mike. And even the Bank of Canada in their monetary policy report and the press conference, uh, the governor of the bank uh, intimated, and I think it's well known that they're thinking of two in the middle two quarters of next year, April and September. But as soon as that wasn't even out of their mouths before those who are observing, those who are commenting, and people that we have a lot of respect, Derek Holt, Bank of Nova Scotia, says there could be as many as eight interest rate hikes between 2022, first quarter 2023. And I was reading this morning, one analyst, and of course, it's way out there. But he says, if this carries on, they're not going to be big ones, but you can see as many as 15. Now that's exaggerated, but sure tells you what direction interest rates are going to go. Yeah, and I think that's the key point. I mean, when they came out on Wednesday, as you said, they fought the follow-up Thursday, Friday, people talking about this, and no wonder. It's a world of wash with that. But my first question comes out of, if they raise interest rates, and you alluded to this earlier, the reason they signaled them is because they don't want to shock the market. We saw that in the fourth quarter of December 218, when all of a sudden there looked like there was going to be reversal in interest rates. And man, the market really took a dive. They don't want any of that. They don't want the disruption. So it's sort of being played out. But, uh, you know, again, I start thinking about the debt numbers of the government, for example. Now, the Bank of Canada says when the debt matures, they're going to be buying it up still. Uh, so maybe that's what helped keeps rates down a little bit. But yeah, this is the biggest story going. Well, it is. And what they're also saying, but now we have to say, how much credibility does the bank have when the marketplace has been telling the bank different than what the bank has been preaching finally up to this report? But now the bank is saying that even though inflation is uh, running hot into next year, before easing to near 2% by late 2022. I don't know how you make that call. Uh, They say the supply chain is going to ease up. I don't know how the Bank of Canada makes that call either. Now, we may get some easing, but Mike, what's going on out there, we can see with our own eyes, is that there is no easing. easing. Things are tightening. One quick story. Supply chain. I went to buy milk the other day. Now, I'm out of Vancouver. I'm away for a while. I went to buy milk supply chain. There was no one or 2% milk in the whole supermarket. That never happens. But boy, is that indicative for the average shopper to say, gee, there's a delivery problem here. Yeah. I mean, the variables are straightforward. It is the supply chain. It is increased labor costs. It is the increased, uh, uh, sorry, the energy costs, as well as other uh, commodities. And they clearly got it wrong to this point. So we'll have to see when they go. Mike, just one other quick thing, and I'm glad you brought it up. We've already seen a move in the bond market. Look at the two-year bonds uh, have doubled since uh, early September. The five-year bond in Canada, which sets you know big influence on the mortgage rates, that's also uh, up significantly, significantly rather since I think October 10th. Uh, again, so we may see a change in the mortgage market also. Well, Mike, actually, um, I've been 
um, negotiating uh, in the mortgage market. You don't need, to, or we don't need to go into the story. But uh, over the last two and a half or three weeks, and you can certainly talk to Ozzy about this. Um, I've seen rates go up a tenth of one percent. Now that's not an announced rate. Five-year uh, fix, two point one zero. Five-year fix, three or four weeks later, two point one nine. So that's the pressure, as you talk about in the bond market. Again, not announced, but that's the upward pressure on rates. And if the bonds continue, yields continue to go up, then you're going to see the banks slowly raise until they declare. Then they could declare a quarter or half or whatever they're going to do. Meanwhile, that trend line is going up. And that's the big story. Of course, we'll keep an eye on it. Mike, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. Time now for the quote of the week. You know, in January this year, the prime minister stated, in quotes, more extreme measures such as vaccine mandates could have real divisive impacts on community and country. In May, the prime minister stated, we are not a country that makes vaccination mandatory. Well, I'll tell you this, I think he was certainly right about the divisiveness. As he noted just a month ago during the federal election campaign, in quotes, I've never seen this intensity of anger on the campaign trail. He then stated, we need to hear the fears and the disagreements and the concerns that Canadians have by listening to each other. Well, I couldn't agree more. But what's obvious is there's been virtually no attempt to do that. In his words, hear the fears and disagreements and concerns that Canadians have by listening to each other. Well, instead of opening up a dialogue, the push has been to marginalize, demonize, dismiss people who oppose government vaccination mandates. Coercion over dialogue has been the preferred approach. You know, polls find, by the way, that the majority of Canadians favor uh, vaccine mandates and the punishment of losing their livelihood if they don't comply. I mean, just this week, the B.C. government put 4,090 healthcare workers on unpaid leave with the threat of a permanent job loss for not getting vaccinated, despite the strains that are already on the healthcare system and the shortages of nurses and other professionals, which has directly impacted ICU and is now reports of thousands of surgeries and tests postponed due to staff shortages. I mean, I just see that there's been very little attempt at dialogue with many questions unanswered for months. I mean, I, for one, would like to know why healthcare professionals are reluctant to get vaccinated. I mean, I've been for for months, but instead some doctors and other medical professionals have literally been suspended for questioning the mandates. But as I said, that suits politicians who have absolutely no medical expertise, but can read the polls and recognize an opportunity for political gain and are happy to squelch any alternative opinions to the official narrative. And I think that's consistent with many other issues. But at what cost? Now, for that, I'm going to go back to the prime minister in his own words. It creates serious divisions in the community and the country. Now, you can decide that if in a country, in a society, already with significant divisions, we're divided on so many issues, the choice not to go to the greatest lengths to open a dialogue rather than use coercion is the best way forward. Well, I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. I've got Eric Nuttall with me. He's the Senior Portfolio Manager, Nine Point Energy Fund. Uh, Eric, first of all, appreciate you finding time, especially a busy time right now. We've just had this huge increase in oil prices and the performance of oil and natural gas stocks. And we've, you know, it's a big story around the world. Let me just start with a little teaser for the audience. Has this got a lot further to run? 
think it does. And uh, the reasons why I think we're in a multi-year bull market revolve around trends that have been in place for several years now. And, you know, as common as it was throughout much of last year with the conversation about COVID being an accelerate, an accelerant of underlying trends, what we're seeing is demand globally is pretty much back to pre-COVID levels. If you exclude jet fuel, which is the remaining week market is, you know, it's still inconvenient to take your family given quarantine rules, et cetera. But when we look at global uh, distillate demand, diesel demand, gasoline demand, it's all pretty much back to pre-COVID levels. And yet the real story is on supply. You know, I think we're in a, an environment where global supply growth cannot match demand growth going forward for uh, a variety of reasons, primarily ESG pressures along with investor pressures where global investors are demanding companies prioritize return of capital, i.e. buybacks and dividends over growth. We're seeing that in Canada. We're seeing that in U.S. shale companies. And so that has a profound impact on oil companies' ability to reinvest in what is a hugely capital-intensive business. So, yes, I think we're structurally undersupplied going forward, and ultimately the oil price has to rally high enough to kill off incremental demand growth. And I mean, obviously, the demand would also come not just, as you said, the aviation side maybe has still got to pick up. But, you know, we do still have emerging nations whose demand must be going up also. And and I guess it's back to your statement about supply. I mean, it just, you know, who who wants to be in oil and gas in, in tens of billions of dollars with the kind of uh, at least environment in the West that we've had in terms of sort of anti-oil development? Yeah, there's a line that I think synthesizes everything down, and that is the fear of peak demand is leading to the reality of peak supply. And so what do I, what do I mean by that? The fear of peak demand, this belief that you know we're all driving electric cars in two years and we're not consuming plastic straws, et cetera, and the demand for the product ending in the imminent future, which I think you and I both know the realities, but there's such profound energy ignorance, the, the lack of knowledge of just how critical oil and hydrocarbons are to our lifestyle. And the second part to that is the reasonable timeline for alternatives to displace it. I, I think if you ask the average person, you know, how is oil used? They're going to say, well, you know, I, I use it every day when I drive my kids to hockey practice, et cetera, and drive into work. And yet gasoline, like light passenger vehicles, is just 27% of total demand. You know, 60% is transportation, 40% is non. And so when we look at transportation, we're talking electric cars, we're talking hydrogen, we're talking but renewable jet fuel. And the timeline to scale any of those is measured in at least a couple of decades. And then you touched on the other aspect, which is 40% of oil demand is non-transportation. So that's lubricants, petrochemicals, plastics, makeup, medicine, thousands and thousands of applications that hydrocarbons oil is used in. And the drivers of growth there is population growth and living standard. And, you know, between now and 2050, which, you know, our global leaders are meeting soon to discuss, you know, we know that's a critical time frame to look to reach net zero, et cetera. The world's population is going to grow by 2 billion people. And that growth is not happening in Canada and the US and Japan and Europe, et cetera. It's happening largely in Southeast Asia and Africa, where they would love to have our quality of life, our living standards, which is massively energy intensive. So, not only is the world's population growing, but the energy intensity of the average lifestyle is growing with it. So it blows my mind when you speak to the energy ignorant and they say, well, you know, we're, maybe oil demand has already peaked. Maybe we're there in a couple of years. The most reasonable estimate I have is demand is going to grow for at least the next 15 years, after which it will slowly decline. 
And yet, when we look today, because of that fear and uncertainty combined with investor pressures, companies aren't investing today, which is having an immediate impact on supply growth today. Well, we certainly don't have to go much further than Canada to look at the last, say, six, seven years. One of the big stories since 2015 is the drop in capital investment. We've had firms moving out of the country. So I think it just illustrates your point. But the other one I'm so glad you're bringing up is that I find the same thing when you ask, can you give me some products that are made, you know, are petroleum based? And, you know, if you start with plastic, for example, you know, it's uh, pretty much in everything or, or so many things rather. Uh, I just find that people aren't aware and we don't have substitutes for that. You mentioned lubricants. I don't see any sign that we've got, you know, a massive scale difference in lubricants going to happen because we have something new. Then there's the problem, uh, you know, electronic vehicles. Sure. The, uh, you might be interested, Eric. The biggest blowback I've got in the last several years is when I started to talk, you know, aggressively, let's say, or, or firmly about the fact that we don't have the natural resources to do this transition. And I see, I saw no plan to obtain them or produce them, uh, whether it's rare earth minerals, whether it's copper, whether it's lithium, uh, you know, the list is a long one. I don't, I just haven't seen a plan that's going to accomplish that. So we can want to build out and change to renewables or electric vehicles all we want. I, I just don't see any sign we can do it quickly. There, there is no plan. And I need to keep this a very apolitical con conversation yeah. However, you know, what I say is there's well-intentioned government policy and then there's energy reality. And right now there's a gigantic chasm between those two factors. And yet ultimately they do have to converge. And so if we're all driving electric cars, you know, by 2035 here and in the United States, at least for new sales, you know, some estimates have been, well, we have to double our power generation capabilities. And at the same time, you know, in the United States, they want to completely decarbonize the power grid by 2035. And so how do we how do we achieve that when there's estimates that the copper market will be in a 32% deficit by the end of this decade? I just saw a headline out from a consultant we use called Rystad, and they say the nickel market is going to be in deficit by 2023 or 2024. And so we cannot meet the aggressive timelines of the well-intentioned given the massive constraints on investment and, and scaling up that which is critical to achieve you know, the goal. So the re this is our reality, whether people like it or not. You and I will be consuming oil for the rest of our lifetimes. And even when we reach peak demand, we can debate whether that's 2035 or 2030. It's, it's kind of irrelevant because it's a very slow moderating decline after because to scale and all the alternatives, it takes time. And yet I would, I would posit the question, well, what does it mean for the oil price when we do reach peak oil demand? Most people would say, well, you know, we've reached peak demand, demand implodes and the price has to go down. I actually believe that the more likely scenario is the oil price keeps going up, even though the peak has been reached. And why is that? We forget that there's two things that determine the price of anything. There is demand, but there's also supply. And so if global producers around the world today are unwilling to invest, when I think we've got a reasonable 10 to 15 years of visibility of demand growth, what will be their willingness in 10 years time when demand is slowly falling? And so I think we'll reach peak, slowly falls off, and yet the price keeps going up. And that has profound implications for the Canadian energy sector, for our oil and gas companies. Because when we look at valuations today of companies, forget 80, if we just use $70 oil, the average company I follow could not just become debt-free, but could privatize themselves with just over five years of free cash flow. 
And yet they're sitting on, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years of resource. So very clearly the market doesn't believe what you and I believe and is ascribing zero value for that resource. And so that has massive implications in terms of is the Canadian oil and gas sector a twilight industry or not? Are there job prospects for young people wanting to apply when universities are canceling certain programs because enrollment is dropping? It's, it's, it's a massively important conversation to be had. And the epicenter of all of this is energy ignorance. Uh, and I, that's certainly been my observation also. Can we just uh, back up for a sec to what's going on right this second sort of in Europe with the natural gas price explosion? We've seen coal explosion back in, in, in China and Asia. We've seen, you know, the oil price, of course, as we've been alluding to. Uh, is that just all about all of a sudden demand jumped up? And we just, as I say, have not been sort of uh, focusing on any kind of supply increase during that same sort of six, seven year period, whatever the time frame. Yeah, it's a confluence of a lot of different factors all um, happening at the same time. And so if it is a you know post-COVID, I'm going to call it post-COVID world, where you've got a, a massive increase in economic activity, the demand for goods, demand for power, etc. At the same time, you have a grid, at least in Europe, at least, that is increasingly reliant on renewables as not just peak, you know, peak demand, but base load. And so in the UK, when the wind dropped to one tenth of normal, when you've got a grid kind of relying on that, then, you know, you get a call on demand for hydrocarbons. But, you know, when you vilify a sector, when you demonize a sector for years, disallowing production growth and in fact calling for declines, it's very difficult to go back to those same same people and, and you know, demand for overnight for them to increase uh, available supply. And so I, I'm, I'm hoping that what we're experiencing as a world now, and this might be overly optimistic, but this is a, a wonderful teaching moment for, yes, we are decarbonizing. You know, government policy is take, taking us there. And I, I frankly, sadly, I think the time for debate is over. We're just, we're heading there. We just have to wrap our minds around that. But the real conversation is, the timeline between now and then is measured in decades. It's not years, it's decades. And yet there is a critical need and a, well, I think a growing need for oil between now and you know several decades from now. And Canada has a critical, critical role. We produce the most ethical and one of the cleanest barrels in the world. No other country on this planet would hold up construction of a major pipeline in our, all of our national interest for two months on account of the migratory uh, season of the common hummingbird. Like, no, they're not going to do that in Saudi. They're not going to do that in Nigeria. And if we give up our role as a producer of that product, we're only ceding market share to guys who do not hold the same environmental standards as ours. And so if the, if the most eco-woke wraps their heads around that this demand for this product is not going away anytime soon, then only the logical would, person would say that, yes, we can't give up uh, you know, that, that market share, especially when our producers have committed to net zero by 2050. It, it blows my mind. It's, it actually aggravates me to no end. Well, I mean, the opportunity. I mean, I've been doing sort of a back of the envelope com uh, calculations, thinking all the oil revenue that we have foregone. And as you say, while the industry has been, uh, you know, I think, aggressive, in cleaning up its uh, environmental impact and carbon emission impact, et cetera. It's just an unbelievable amount of money 
that could be going to uh, government coffers, for example, obviously employment opportunities and company opportunities, but uh, yeah, it's a head shaker. And as you say, it comes right back to what you alluded to first. And certainly my experience is people just don't understand the role of energy. They don't understand, uh, you know, the development in other parts of the world and the demand that's going to reach. And we don't have alternatives to meet that level of demand. So yeah, let me, let me talk about investors for a second. Um, To me, and, what I'm hearing is that when we get dips in oil, because it's not a straight line, that those become buying opportunities. I, again, I think we're in a structural bull market. Yeah. Things have moved, but you know when I look at stock valuations today, you know n- n- names have done pretty well. My fund's done relatively well. Um, you know the index would be up 80 percent. I think I'm up 165 percent of the year, and you'd be like, well, surely the opportunity in energy stocks is over. Like you're you're selling, of course. And my primary message to my clients is energy stocks today are cheaper than they were on January 1st of this year. And you're like, okay, how, how is that possible? Mm-hmm. And we only have to reflect on the experience of 2020 when many names fell by 60, 70, 80, 90% in the matter of a few months. So much of the gains this year have been repairing the damage that occurred last year. And at the same time, we've had oil rally from 53 to about 83. And so I'm, I'm using still $70 on my investment decision-making for next year. And in my view, names are trading at about three times their enterprise value. So that's just their, their market capitalization and their debt divided by their annual cash flow, where, you know, historically they used to trade at seven to nine. And you might say, well, you know, I hear about divestments, you know, University of Toronto just the other day announced divesting as did the case to Depot and Harvard and all of these, these things. And there's less money, there's CSG pressures. And yet, when I use, and then if I use a uh, discount to what these names used to trade at, we still see very, very meaningful upside in the sector, let alone if I'm right that we'll ultimately see all time high oil prices in the next couple of years. Are you focusing on Canada primarily, or you look globally uh, for the energy opportunities? I can invest anywhere in the world. And I right now have 100% of my focus on Canada. Our companies are the least expensive of anywhere in the world. In fact, we're, we actually trade on par with those in Russia. So I don't care what your view is of political risk in Canada relative to other jurisdictions. I would suggest that we, you know, a political risk discount of that magnitude is not warranted. And the biggest reason is why have foreign investors fled? You know, we won't go into certain pieces of legislation over the past couple of years. The primary reason has really been lack of sufficient takeaway capacity for our products, whether it's natural gas or oil. And, you know, for oil at least, we're, we, we will have added two, uh, over 1 million barrels per day of incremental capacity over the next two years. And in, in an environment of, of low to no growth, when investors such as myself say to these companies, you cannot possibly justify growing oil production when your stock is trading as low as they are, what you need to do is maximize free cash flow and return that capital back to investors in an attempt to get re-rated from you know, depressed and depressing valuation levels. And so with incremental 1 million barrels per day of new capacity in a low to no growth world, Canada is actually overpiped, which means the differentials for our product, be it natural gas or oil, light or heavy, should be much, much, much narrower, certainly in 2023 when TMX uh, comes on. So I look at the valuations, they're the cheapest in the world. The reason for capital flight is now obsolete. Our companies have excellent balance sheets, low decline rates, 
And if you were to query a, an average energy investor of anywhere in the planet, what do they want? They want one thing and one thing only, and that is return of capital. They want dividends and they want buybacks. And the attributes of a business that allow them to, to achieve that to the maximum level, you find those characteristics the most in Canada. It's a fascinating uh, chat with you, and I appreciate it so much. Nine Point Energy Fund, uh, Eric is, of course, Senior Portfolio Manager there. And I'll, I'll say this, that uh, look at the performance of the fund over the last uh, year. I mean, it's spectacular, nothing short of spectacular, and setting out the view for what we're looking for going forward. It's never a straight line, but looking at the broad trends that are pushing these prices up. Do you bother with uh, something, Eric, like a, a, a a forecast for what oil prices might be. You do, as I heard, with your sort of standard evaluation, you're saying $70 oil next year. Uh, do you have projections that if this keeps going, though, it sounds like oil yes. prices could go significantly higher? Yeah, in January of this year, I said, okay, I think we're going to hit 60 by June and 70 by year end. So even I were, were was too bearish. Going forward, you know, we're entering into uh, the seasoning weakest period of, of demand globally for oil. Q1's the weakest and progressively gets stronger. So I, I feel like $80 is a pretty healthy level for the next, I would say, six months. And my bias is we see $100 by the end of 2022, because at that point, we will have exhausted OPEC spare capacity. You will have had a, a modest uh, ramp in U.S. shale growth, I think, maximum cap of about 700,000 barrels per day will be will have surpassed uh, pre-COVID demand levels. And I think the, mar- the, the market's going to wake up to the fact that with the exhaustion of OPEC spare capacity and the end of U.S. shale hyper growth, you know, there's no there's no safety buffer anymore if there's another ab cake, another geopolitical event, et cetera. And I, I as a guy who does this, you know, 24-7, you know, I've got family and, and, and this job to to occupy my focus. I look at the world beyond 2022, and if we're back into a, a world that grows by one and a half million barrels per day of demand each year for oil, I can't identify where those barrels are going to come from. And so ultimately, my theory is you need to kill that incremental oil demand, and you only do that when the burden on the global economy reaches about 6%. That's a historically good level. That would suggest an oil price of about $140 right now. And so that's that's the logic behind that. That's not a next year call. That's, you know, call it a two to three year call. But when energy stocks are discounting an oil price in the high 50s, when I can use an oil price $13 below where we already are, and in my mind, I believe that's a generational opportunity, it gives you free optionality on, you know, that bullish thesis that I, that I hold. Well, I hope we get a chance to talk many times before that happens, Eric. And I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you finding time for us today. Happy to spend the time with you. Time now for this week's shocking stat. I know I've been talking a lot about inflation, but it's a big deal if you're concerned about your cost of living. Plus, it's got added importance, as I mentioned with Michael Levy earlier, is that inflation expectations put upward pressure on interest rates. And come on, we got a world awash with debt. And so interest rates are a big deal, too. Now, please note, it's not actually what the rate of inflation is, but rather the expectations as to what it will be that has the biggest influence. I mean, when you look at things, for example, should I buy a government bond that pays 2%? Well, not if I think inflation is going to be about 5%, which effectively means I'm going to lose 3% purchasing power every year. 
or if I think inflation is going to be significant in the future, then maybe I invest in traditional hedges like gold or real estate or more recently Bitcoin. The point to get, though, and this is one of the shocking stats, is inflation expectations are at a 13-year high. A government report also confirms that yesterday with the consumer prices. Think about this. They rose at their fastest pace in 30 years in September. And a big driver of persistent inflation is workers' wages. Well, good news for workers because they just saw their biggest compensation boost in the last 20 years. Now, look. I'm going to tell you in advance, we're going to have to be talking a lot about inflation, raising interest rates and your cost of living and how to protect yourself for quite some time. Been talking about, you know, the big financial story of the week, of course, is uh, last Wednesday, Bank of Canada moves up its target for when it's going to start raising interest rates. The market's way ahead of it, whether you're looking at the bond market or just looking at projections about when the bank and how often the bank will act. Some projections as much as four and five times next year, eight times uh, into 2023. Obviously, the interest rate environment has changed. And that brings a lot of talk about mortgages, too, because, I, as I mentioned, there's a five-year mortgage jump, uh, or rather a five-year bond rate, which has the big influence on mortgages. I want to bring Ozzy Jurek in here right now. I'm going to start with that, but I also want to get to the CMHC big concern is maybe this spikes uh, in huge increase in mortgage defaults. But let's start. Have you seen a change in the five-year mortgage rate yet? Yes, and there's always almost like a direct connection to rising long-term bond rates, say the five-year rate or the 10-year rate, and mortgages. There's almost instant, uh, you know, a, a kind of a thing. The other thing that's happening is that the banks are becoming tighter, so your qualifications are harder. It, it takes you longer to get approved. You know, we used to just go into the bank on a Monday and you had your mortgage approved on a Wednesday. No, that is not that easy. So if your credit rating is good and solid, then maybe it's only a point, you know, one or point two percent higher, but it could be could be two and a half percent, could be more than that if you if you're sort of marginal in terms of the qualifying. In terms of the defaults, uh, <clears throat> of course, uh, you and I have talked and quoted CMHC for two years, and and never with any kind of a confidence because they forecast that we would go into massive defaults when we just did a mortgage deferral, which was approved by the federal government and the banks, and they called it possible default. They called it that we might have lower than 18% crash in, in prices. Well, now they're worried about mortgage debt. And of course, our mortgage debt has gone over $2 trillion, which is the highest level on record. But by a report from the Canadian Bank Association, as of July 31, of the 9,500, 9,157 mortgages that were in arrears, that's from 4.97 million mortgages. That's really a default rate of 0.18%. Well, yeah, let me just uh, come back and highlight that. We got 2 trillion in mortgages, big record there. But as you say, there's four, nearly 5 million, basically, 5 million residential mortgages in Canada, and just over 9,000 are over 90 days in arrears. I mean, uh, that's hardly a big problem. But this has been something that uh, really for years we've been warned about the size of our personal debt, size of our mortgage debt. But it's never really, even if you go back to 2009, uh, 2008 in the subprime mortgage crisis, you never saw the mortgage default situation have any kind of dramatic impact on our banking system in Canada. 
You're so right. I mean, the average rate over the years was 0.3. And now for BC, it's 0.13. It's hardly existing. I mean, even Alberta, which has a tough economic situation, is less than a half of 1%. They seem to concentrate on mortgages to big debt. Nobody talks about the 27% credit card debt, which sort of seems to be a logical kind of thing. We're worried about the mortgage being 2.1 or 2.2. What about credit cards? Why don't we get them down to 16%? I'm sure if we looked at it, we'd have far more defaults in that area than we have on the mortgage side. Yeah, just off the top of my head, I think that, you know, the average Canadian's got something in the neighborhood of about twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars in other debt other than their mortgage. You know, might be a home equity loan, might be a car loan, and as you say, credit card debt. And you're right. You know, we're talking about mortgage debt when it's somewhere. Let's say an average Canadian's got something under three percent probably right now uh, on term if they're not on variable, which is much lower. But you look at, you know, the best credit card rates are something like 16, 17% compounding. So yeah, maybe we should be focusing on the credit card debt. But as you said, the CMHC has sort of been their, the, the voice of doom for a number of years. Yeah. And of course, the other thing too is that CMHC is worried, but the 30% of the first time home buyers in Canada now get help from their parents. You know, it's the bank of mom and pop. And also, it's not just that. Also, they're co-signing mortgages in far greater rates than ever before. So actually, there's probably more stability in the mortgage area than is just apparent on the straight, uh, straight percentages. Well, obviously, it's a story we'll keep an eye on. But uh, yeah, I think it's a little bit of cry wolf. Uh, at some point, maybe it's going to be true, but they've said it so often, Ozzy. Uh, you know, I'll be, I'll be sound asleep by the time it comes true. Maybe I'll be dead. I don't know. But in the meantime, Ozzy, have a great weekend. Thanks for having me, Mike, and all the best to the listeners. Let's go live to the trading desk now. I've got Victor Adair with me. Vic, I got to start with interest rates. I chatted a bit with Michael Levy about that. But, you know, if you look at the, you know, we're obviously concerned with domestic, but you look at the global picture, too. I mean, it wasn't just Canada who started to say, hey, we're going to move our short term rates higher sooner than we had thought. I mean, I saw Australia talking that way. New Zealand's done it. Bank of England. So, you know, that's sort of the environment we're in now. You know, we had, Mike, a, a really choppy week uh, across assets, whether it was currencies, stocks, interest rates, commodities. And I think a good part of that was directly a result of the, let's call it the, the curveball that some of the central banks were throwing at the markets. It was just a few months ago, you know, everybody in the central bank side was saying, listen, folks, this inflation thing, it's just transitory, nothing to worry about. We got it, uh, we got it under control. And, and I'm beginning to wonder if maybe that not Panic is too strong a word, but maybe they're changing their mind in terms of transitory. Anyway, we've got these different central banks around the world that have been uh, changing their game, you know, and, and the, how it showed up is short term interest rates have jumped. Interestingly enough, the long term rates, not nearly so much. So we get a real flattening of the yield curve. But that's rocking the markets. I mean, uh, the Bank of Canada this week, absolutely out of left field as far as, you know, what the market was expecting. The Canadian dollar jumped about a full cent, not quite, but nearly a full cent in just a matter of minutes. And the, our, our forward curve, the interest rate futures and so on, just went nuts. I mean, there was no bid there. The market just fell out of bed. I mean, eventually, you know, if the thing steadied up a bit. But right now, I mean, the Canadian two-year is at, a, at about a 1.05% yield. The U.S. yield on the two-year is about a half a percent. In other words, it's a half a percent more premium on a, U, a Canadian two-year over a U.S., and that was one of the reasons the Canadian dollar jumped. 
and, and it's straightforward. I mean, it's no different than if uh, I'm choosing where to put my deposit my money and I've got one bank offering me, you know, one full percent plus and the other one asking, offering me half a percent. Well, I go to the one percent and that's what money, that's what you're describing. Money goes in that direction where the interest rates are higher. Uh, you know, it's obviously too, I'm always saying this, Vic, it's a world awash with debt, you know, record sovereign debt, record um, you know, individual debt, but it's so fascinating. And I mean, this is the thing I really hope our audience understands is that it's a very tough time for the central banks. I alluded to this with Michael is that you, those inflation numbers are significant. The bank came out and said, you know what, we could get see as much as 5% inflation. Well, that's a big chunk of change for the average Canadian. You know, just take, let's say you spent 10,000 bucks last year and all your, you know, on, on average, now you're going to spend 10,500 bucks. You know, it's, and of course, not many of us only get by with only $10,000 in expenditures, given our tax rate. But, you know, it, it's so it's a really significant number. But traditionally, they raise interest rates to discourage inflation. Well, if they raise interest rates, what happens to all that sovereign debt and my individual debt? Well, I guess you can picture that going forward that they do keep interest rates down. And, you know, if there's pressure, that then something has to blow somewhere. You know, yeah. it's the old thing of trying to keep three different beach balls underwater. You may be able to keep two of them down, but one of them's going to rip up. Now, where's that going to show up? It might be, you know, it shows up in rising housing prices. It might be it shows up in rising energy prices. You know, we're, we're seeing these kind of things. I, I know last year I was saying to myself, I, I'm not sure whether the bank are right in terms of transitory. And, uh, I, you know, I'm not going to try to second guess them, but but I'll know that it's not transitory when we see uh, wages rising, because those won't go back down again. And when we see rents going up, now those things are happening and they're not going to go back. Uh, I heard a story here this morning that somebody was talking about uh, in a place, truck drivers are now going to get paid $100,000 a year. I mean, there's probably a lot of guys out there that say, hey, <laughs> I'll drive a truck for a hundred grand a year. Of course. Uh, but that's just kind of anecdotal. You know, these, these uh, people, the old saying about the, the cure for high prices is high prices. And when the markets move, if you let markets move, coming back to your thing about the central banks probably going to keep a lid on prices. But if you let markets move, then, you know, things resources get allocated as they should be. When you distort the markets by not allowing that to happen, it, the pressure is going to pop somewhere and we're going to see it. And right now it looks like inflation. And again, just uh, for people to be clear, why would you lend the government money at, at a percent for two years if you're going to get inflation, even according to the Bank of Canada, who has understated it before, at something like three and three quarters percent for the next two years? In other words, great, I'm losing two percent both years I held that government bond. And that's why it's so significant. And that's why interest rates have an upward push usually with inflation, uh, you know, because people want to get compensated, that their buying power is getting killed. But let me go on to whether one other aspect of the inflation story, of course, is energy. And we talked to Eric Nuttall earlier, uh, you know, and he's clearly long term bullish. It doesn't mean you go in a straight line at all, but longer term bullish. Uh, and you look at those WTI, you know, the West Texas Intermediate, which is what we call oil. Um, what was it, a seven year high this week? Yeah, seven year high last week at about $85. We dropped to as low as call it $80 and 50 cents uh, during the week. As I was saying, it's been choppy everywhere. Uh, I think the, the, I, I certainly wouldn't disagree with Erica on uh, long term view. I mean, it just looks like 
we're going to be spending not nearly enough money to 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 be able to bridge from where we are now to this uh, future where we're not burning fossil fuels anymore. Uh, I think, but let's, that's too political to, to get into. But one of the things I was saying at the last World Outlook conference that we had in person, but that was the, the 2021. And I said to the folks in the room, listen, you may have different thoughts about ESG, but it is going to have a big impact in, in this way. I could picture where the energy prices, not gas, WTI, coal, whatever, is going up. But the shares of the companies that are involved in that business won't be going up because the politically correct pension funds, endowments, universities, and so on are going to be selling their shares because they don't want to be associated with dirty oil. Yeah, we got that this week. I mean, Eric was mentioning that too. I mean, major foundations or universities, whatever it is, saying we're going to divest. And exactly what you talked about at that 220 conference is that that, of course, puts downward pressure on stocks but while the oil price is going up. But the, the thing that does happen here, and I mean, I'm seeing this in what we call the shale patch in the States, private equity is moving in. Private equity that is not beholden to, you know, uh, the kids parading around the campus with, with saying dirty oil signs. They're, they're seeing the opportunity here where, you know, when folks like the Cage de Depot and the big pension fund out of Holland are, are dumping their shares into the market. Uh, they're, the private equity is seeing an opportunity here where they can go in and make really good profits in the energy business because the other people don't want to have put their money there. Yeah, it's, it is, as you said, a fascinating time. Let me finish with this uh, and just come back to, you mentioned the Canadian dollar having a big bump, you know, thanks to the perception that maybe we're going to raise rates. They already are higher, but we're going to raise rates and the U.S. may not. We'll find out next week with the Federal Reserve. Yeah, uh, the, the Fed is the most important central bank in the world, clearly. Uh, so far, they seem to be sticking to the story that they will not raise interest rates, that they, they, they will start to reduce their quantitative easing. I mean, that's been telegraphed to the market. They don't want to shock the market with something like that. Uh, but, you know, there, there will be press conferences and somebody will say this or say that. And the market's going to, you know, pick, try to pick up on the nuance. But so far, the Fed seems to be sticking to the story that this inflation bump is transitory. And the, the risk, I suppose, is, if they, you know, finally sit down and say, you know something, we're wrong on this. Now, now they're going to have to move and it'll be a dramatic move. Well, there is going to be a lot of action as there has been. I think <laughs> this is going to continue and I'm happy that you'll be here to chronicle it for us. And in the meantime, I'll tell people to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca and have a look at the charts, have a look at the fuller analysis. Great stuff as usual, Vic. Appreciate it. Mike, it's always fun talking with you. Thank you. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, some of the big questions, at least for me during COVID-19, dealt with restrictions and lockdowns and guidelines and protocols. Well, it was how much of that is based on science and how much is based on political considerations? You know, a lot of times I thought that provincial health officers were absolutely no match for politicians. For example, I can't believe that provincial health officers, while strongly insisting that we social distance, stay in small gatherings and mass we're in favor of the massive protests in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd. But politicians undermine their authority by saying that those protests were exceptions. 
Come on, it wasn't for health reasons. In BC, Chief Medical Officer Bonnie, Dr. Bonnie Henry remained silent when NDP Premier John Horgan saw an opportunity to gain political advantage by calling an election just while the second wave was intensifying and more restrictions were being put in place, let alone the public was distracted. And same thing with the Delta variant. When it was taking hold, some provinces were dealing with ICU shortages, but the prime minister did the same thing, decided it was an opportune time to gain a majority. Yet Canada's chief health officer, Theresa Tom, remained silent about the COVID-related dangers. I mean, there are other examples that suggest that political polling may have had as much to do with mandates and restrictions as the science supporting them. So here we go. On page 40 of Dr. Henry's new book, Be Kind, Be Calm, Be Safe, she offers some troubling insight in quotes. Just like every other chief medical officer of health across the country, I had a mandate and the legal authority to speak directly to the public about issues related to health. I was fully aware, however, that if I were wildly offside with what the provincial health minister and government believed, it could make my position challenging. And if I was, if I was too far off the mark, too often, the government could render me ineffective and fire me altogether. Come on, I invite you to think about that statement. Wildly offside with what the provincial health minister and government believed, she could lose her job. Well, obviously, interference with politicians. Keep in mind, they have no medical expertise whatsoever. And we've been told from the outside, uh, outset rather, to follow the science, not follow what's politically palatable or expedient. It raises all sorts of questions. I'll give you just one example. Is that the case with vaccine mandates? After all, Dr. Bonnie Henry clearly stated on May 25th, in quotes, there is no way that we will recommend inequities be increased by the use of things like vaccine passports for services with public access here in British Columbia. Well, obviously that changed. I don't know why. But I will state with certainty, I'm in favor of research-based decisions. I'm all in of following the science, although I think the level of certainty around that science has been clearly overstated in many cases. But I am very interested in the science, and I'll follow those guidelines. But you know what? I am not interested whatsoever, not in the least, in following guidelines, restrictions, mandates, whatever, that are motivated by political considerations or interference. That's all the hot time we have today for the show. Look, I hope you have a terrific weekend and continue to join me on mikesmoneytalks.ca, also on Money Talks Tweets. Why not join up? I can give you a lot of great information there. And Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. Have a terrific weekend. Subscribe to the Money Talks with Michael Campbell podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your on-demand audio for the complete show, daily podcasts, and more.